Welcome to GalaxyCon Talks Comics with your hosts, Mike Broder and Patty Hawkins. Join us each week as we talk to some of the biggest names in the comic book industry, both past and present. Make sure to follow us online at GalaxyConTalksComics.com. Welcome to GalaxyCon Talks Comics with Mike and Patty. How you doing, Patty? I am well, Mike. How are you tonight? Good. We're uh, we're starting a new format because of some of the, the new things we're doing, and, and this will be a weekly show where Patty and I talk to comic book industry folks. And tonight we have the one and only Bill Jemis. He is the former Marvel publisher, executive VP, former president of Fleer Entertainment, founder of 360 EP, and currently founder, publisher, and chief executive officer of AWA Studios. Did I get that right? You got that right. And I have to confess, I percolated up in life as a tax lawyer. And then as a you know, staff attorney, associate general counsel, and then a business manager at the National Basketball Association. So I really got my entree into your world was sports cards. So if you remember NBA hoops cards and skybox basketball cards, yep. that was that was my posse making that stuff. I was uh, I was talking to we were talking to Dan DiDio last week, and we we're talking about how there's how you both kind of came into the comic book world from other real world professions that generally speaking, a lot of, a lot of the, the guys who are running the show are, are uh, born and raised in the comic in comic con land and comic book land. And there's not a lot of executives who come in from the outside. And that when you came in, both you and Dan faced a little bit of, I guess, criticism and, or, you know, opposition because you were, you know, a little different. So, you know, I, I, I grew up business-wise in the National Basketball Association. And, you know, we, we had from top down, from David Stern, rest his soul, from David Stern on down, we didn't hire basketball fans for business jobs. So I got the job at the NBA because I was a tax lawyer and, and somebody had to manage the salary cap. And, the, you know, so they figured a tax lawyer, the, ta- the, the internal revenue code would fill my back wall and the salary cap was about this long. By and large, we would hire people who were successful in their industries and have them bring expertise from accounting, from PR, from marketing, from advertising, from graphics into our world, figuring, you know, you could learn basketball, watch the games, hang out with us. But I couldn't teach a person how to market because I didn't know how. So so the recruiting technique, and I carried that through throughout the rest of my career, is hire pros at what they do. And it's fun to learn about comic books. It's fun to learn about basketball. You know, it, it was, um, there, there was resistance at Marvel for the, it was sort of mid-level resistance. So people who saw their old world ending were looking to hang on, you know, like drowning people want to grab your neck and bring you down. So the industry was dying. It was time for some new techniques. And there was a little bit of resistance. So what year was it that you... Uh you kind of took over at Marvel. So I had two starts at Marvel. First time was early 90s from NBA. Marvel brought me in to start up an entertainment card brand. So if you remember the Fleer, let's see, Fleer Ultra X-Men was our first one. We did the Marvel masterpieces, you know, really beautiful Marvel artwork. And then, you know, one thing led to another. We have to, you know, spectacularly successful trading card business. So this was mid-90s. Yeah. And you know, we had a pretty much unlimited budget. We had a scorched earth attitude towards licensing. So if anything could possibly be successful, we grabbed it. So we just outpaid for every license. And we were really dominant. And at the time, and this is embarrassing, but our stupid little trading card money was bringing in more net revenue than the rest of Marvel combined. But Marvel's owners at the time, the uh, Ron Perlman's McAndrews Ford Group, kept on buying these companies and stacking up Fleers on Skyboxes on Paninis. And we built $2.5 worth of debt. And it was collapsing the company. So I went to a management meeting, and I'm the knucklehead lawyer. I'm like, excuse me, we're going to go bankrupt in six months, and here's how. And the next day I was fired. Uh, they just you know, sent me home. Here's the severance package. Knock yourself out and, and sent me home. So I, uh, you know, I kicked around a couple of fun years at Madison Square Garden. And then Mike Perlmutter and Alan Fine, the guys who were running Toy Biz, took over Marvel, wanted somebody to do merchandise licensing. 
And I said, okay, look, I know how to do merchandise licensing. I was an MBA guy. So we, that we breed merchandise licensing. And I said, I'll do that if you let me run publishing in your media. There was hemming and hawing. And I was talking to board members saying, why do you want to run publishing? And I said, because we can bring publishing back with a storm and that'll leave the charge back in the business. And seriously, I almost didn't get hired because I believed in comics. That shows you how crazy the world was back then. But, you know, Perlmutter, Al, and the guys trusted me. They liked what we were doing. They enjoyed Ultimates. And, and you know, we had a nice team effort, and it really worked. How familiar were you with comics before you got into, into the business? Were you Had you read comics as a kid? Um, I am. I like to say that I've never read a comic book when I have to read a comic book. But uh, yeah, don't forget, I was a lawyer. So I, I right. had yes. two months in between NBA and starting at FLIR. And in that two-month period, must have read 50 comic books a day. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but as many monthly piles as I could you know, stand, I read. So it was a real crash course. And if you know lawyers, are, our brains are like bathtubs. You just fill them up. So I filled my brain with all the Marvel stuff. And you know, even at the time, Marvel heyday, you know, of the maybe we're doing 100 books a month, you know, there may be five or six really good ones. When I got back to Marvel in, you know, 2000, I, I, I do yoga now, so I actually could take my foot and put it pretty close to my mouth. You know, and the people say, what's broken? What are you going to do? And I'd look at the camera and I'd say, well, the comic books suck. So maybe if we fix the comic books, the industry would work. And that was just a horribly stupid and rude thing to say to all my creators and all my fans and all their loyal retailers. But, you know, sometimes you just have to look the problem in the eye and you can't blink. And you have to understand that it wasn't an accident that we lost, you know, good, successful book. Mid 90s was a million units. And sure, maybe 20, 30 percent of that was just people buying boxes and sticking in the attic. But there were real fans. 75,000 newsstands, 10,000 stores. A lot of the attrition, look, some of the attrition was the prices were high. Some of the, the attrition's we were too greedy, too many bucks. But for the most part, you couldn't hand any Marvel comic book in 1999 to any 12-year-old and have them enjoy the book. No, we went from, you know, Patty and I remember the trading card stuff because we both either worked in, managed, owned, whatever, comic store. Yeah. And we remember all the, all the FLIR stuff, all the the X-Men cards, all the ultras, the masterpieces. And, and you're right. They sold. They Oh, they were they were monsters. And we watched as, a without any gimmick, without anything, a good, solid comic <coughs> readership should be selling several hundred thousand copies. And I think by the time you came in, some of the books, the key books like Spider-Man, are probably selling in the 50,000 range. Yeah, right. You know, so, I mean, more, I mean, so the X books were hovering just around 100. And Spider-Man took a big dip. I'll tell you the lowest selling number one spot, the lowest selling first issue Spider-Man maybe of all time was ultimate Spider-Man number one. So you talk about the resistance. So up and down the line, Joe Quesada was an exception. Ralph, Ralph Macchio was an exception, but up and down the line, people inside the company did not like ultimates. They really didn't like the idea. A lot, a lot of people didn't like the idea of Spider-Man being a teenager. And a lot of retailers didn't like the idea of having a lot of teenagers in their stores reading comic books about other teenagers. Luckily, the top 200 retailers, smart as all hell, aggressive as all hell, took a position with the book and, and really moved Ultimates into the forefront. And Ultimates put us back in the map with kids. So you've done, you did the Marvel thing. You you were there for several years. You did a, a double take a few years ago. And now you're doing um, AWA. So you've been now around the block a couple of times. You've been in the mix. And right now, I think we're entering, we were just talking about this before we got on, how in the late 90s, that was a very, very difficult time in the industry. And I think now, this moment in time is probably as bad, if not perhaps worse, than where we were the last time. The glass, on the one hand, is fairly well emptied out, right? So... Heyday, newsstands, 75,000 strong, feeding comic book shops, 10,000 strong. So you had a very natural feeder system from quarter a dime at the newsstand, kids on bicycles going down the corner shop to buy comic books, 
get a few comic books, want to collect, want a perfect issue, go to the comic shop. So there was a feeder system and it really worked very well. 2000, that was gone, but Marvel was very aggressive. My team was very aggressive sampling free comic books. So, I mean, I could reel them off. Million and a half X-Men comic books at movie theaters with the X-Men movie. Probably seven million Ultimate Spider-Man comic books sampled everywhere from KB Toys boxes. Every time a movie came out, Walmart would hand out two, three million comic books right at the front of the store. So vast sampling program translated really directly into people coming into the comic shop to get the rest of the books. And then, you know, had the obvious brainstorm of rather than having one long soap opera for 40 years of Spider-Man, cutting things down into story arcs so we could do graphic novels. So it was bleak, but there were clear paths to success just by substituting the opening of the funnel from newsstand to sampling, right? And then adding to the back end, so comic shops couldn't, didn't just sell single copy monthlies, they had something that would last forever, and then everybody had a backlist. Everybody always had something to sell regardless of what was hot and cold, right? Now, poof, right? No newsstands, Marvel and DC aren't gonna sample, uh, stores are closed. So that's all emptied out. So now you either crawl up into a ball and hope you're gonna grow a shell like a crustacean, or you get the hell out there and figure out what the market's left. And there's quite a bit left. And you got to go hit that what's left. So AWA is hitting hard at what's left. Digital was supposed to be the great the great hope of the comic industry. You know, 10 years ago, Comixology, you know, Marvel Unlimited, these things were supposed to do for comic books what, you know, iTunes did for, you know, uh, movies and uh, music. And it didn't. What happened? I, I'm going to quibble with supposed to, and I, and I won't name names because I, you know, I, I when I got into the industry, I spent a lot of time fooling around and talking to my old friends. So, pretty much everybody who was running a comic book company talking to their investors would say print is dropping, but digital is going to be the great white hope. They didn't know what they were talking about. There was no evidence to make you believe that anybody was going to pay money for a comic book online. So that was just a story that we would tell each other to get money from other people. If you really looked at it, you didn't believe it. So, but, but I would say that right now, digital is the great hope. So we don't have a feeder system. The most likely feeder system is build your fan base digitally and then sell people who love this stuff digitally a print version. And, you know, Kickstarter, if nothing else, Kickstarter is a lot of wonderful things, but if for nothing else in comics, Kickstarter, Patreon, you GoFundMe, prove out that fans who read books for free for a significant period of time will very generously pay money to the creators to buy the books. So if there's a hope, that's the hope that I see right now. But, but the idea that somebody, you know, that a normal person's going to spend three, four ninety nine for a digital comicsology comic book, who's going to do that? You have to be addicted already, right? So that's going to disappear anyway. And you have to have $4 that, uh, for digits. I'm not poor. I won't spend $4 for a comic book. I, I just, I can't bring myself to hit the button. So I don't know why people, you know, I don't know that, I don't know that that was ever a legitimate expectation. I think that was a lot of BS that got passed around. Another, another problem with the comic industry, I think, is that a lot of the, the people who go to the comic stores are, look like me and Patty, right? You're talking 40-year-old, 50-year-old, year old men and there's not a lot of youth in our in our industry and the youth i Mike, think not to quibble at 62 40 looks pretty young okay so we're, yes i, I we're, think we're, we're the last he thinks i'm 40 <laughs> well, i'm 45 so i'm 45 we're the last of yeah. the, of of the of the generation of guys who or, and girls who came in you know pulling comics oh. off of a newsstand getting into the industry after yeah. us you had to be drug into a comic store by a brother, a sister, a friend, or somebody. There was no your parents buying you something off the spinner rack. The the kids today are reading manga. They're reading the the young adult, you know, graphic novels, which for some reason, men, most comic stores refuse to identify as comics. You know, I, I there's so many dinosaur retailers that look at. That look at manga and the and the and the young adult stuff, 
and go, that's not a comic book. And I go, but if it, if it looks like a comic and it talks like a comic and walks like a comic, isn't it a comic? Even if it's in a, a smaller format that you flip through. I mean, what's the difference between a manga and the digest that DC put out in the, in the early 80s? Well, the manga is just thicker. It's the same thing. But these stores and, and a lot of the want to hold to their superheroes or their, their specific audiences. And I think that's damaging. But so yeah, is, yeah. Okay, go ahead, Pat. Actually, if just, you guys don't mind, I, I, I just wanted for, um, I told Patty and Mike, so my COVID confinement is in the attic of my house. So my wife and my son are downstairs. I just have to go open the window because it's hot up here. So you keep talking. Oh, yeah, so Jack, I'll echo your point, Mike. It's, 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 like, it's like going, it's like what if McDonald's only sold the Big Mac? And nothing else, and that's what they don't understand. The the retailers like you're in the merchandise business. You're selling specialized merchandise, and yeah, the superhero stuff is maybe at the top drawer. But you know, once in a while, somebody walks into McDonald's and says, "I'll the filet fish combo," you know, and and that's what it. And now, one thing's getting bigger than the other. So, yeah. So you know, part of the problem with being part of the problem with, with with analyzing why people make bad business decisions is sort of looking at the core of it. And, and I do have to say, you know, I mean, I put this foot in my mouth so many times when, when Marvel instituted a no, re, a no reprinting, no overprinting policy to build collectability. And, and the top 200 retailers were thrilled because now they could buy a book for you know, a dollar and sell it for 50. Many retailers were upset, and I just said, "Well, this is like an IQ test. You know, if you pass the test, you buy the book. If you don't, you don't." Which is really horrible and again, stupid thing to say. As I've gotten to know retailers better, it's generally not—it's not candle power. It's just recognizing that they have built a business based on people with a particular taste in Marvel and DC superhero comics, and to get teenagers into the store—that's a whole different kettle of fish. That means it's a very, it's a, you have to be very aggressive. And like, you know, the retailers that I, and I do that do this, you have to be really aggressive to get new customers. And when you're just hanging on and paying rent and you don't have that audience, and now you take your open to buy dollars and take them out of Spider-Man and put them into what the hell is a My Hero Academia? It's right. awfully hard to do. And, you know, and, you, and you're hanging on with every month. Way more sympathy for that. And listen, I have the same sympathy now when I talk to retailers about digitalize the feeder system. They see, listen, digital is going to cannibalize. It's not going to feed. Very good, successful retailers look at me and say, Bill, if once you get used to reading your comic book digitally, you're not going to go buy the print. I don't know if that's wrong or right, but I, I can say right back, if it's not digital, then there's no other feeder system. And let's, let's just go. let's just go work for a living. Because if, if digital doesn't work, there's nothing else on the horizon that has a reasonable opportunity to bring fans into the business. Now, that's because I don't run Marvel anymore. If I ran Marvel, if he ran Marvel, there wouldn't be a 12-year-old who didn't get a free sample every time they bought anything. But that's not going to happen. That's not what Disney that does, That's not what Disney and ATT are. Yeah, there'd be a, a Spider-Man comic on the shelf every month that, that appealed to a 12-year-old. Yes, and when you watch the Black Panther movie, you could read a comic book that had something to do with the Black Panther movie. But that's it. But now it's it's not. It's going to be in the hands of the independent comic book companies and the independent retailers to bring the business back. And I think it's really embrace digital or figure something else out. But don't sit around waiting for fans to show up. They're not going to show up. You raise an interesting point about the independent companies because again, Mike and I in our generation. We went to the comic shops. Yeah, we were getting our Marvel and DC. But again, something else that factored into locking us in was our exposure to all the independent stuff at the time. You know, first comics, Eclipse comics, they were putting out more mature stuff. And again, that fed into, oh, this is this well. There's a, there's a, there's a deeper side of the pool that I was solely gravitating for, towards. And again, it built me into a customer. A and customer there were, and, 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 and some of the, you know, there was exclusivity on some stuff. Like there were some books you could only get in the direct market. You exactly. couldn't get on the newsstand. And then I, I see, I don't know if it was Shooter or somebody said they wanted to do exclusives you could only get on the newsstand. Yeah. You couldn't get in the direct market. 
And then his attitude was, well, let the guys at the stores go pick them up off the newsstand if they want them so bad. But, you know, you're, you're, you're doing a trade-off. So under that model, you'd have stuff right now that you could only get in stores that you couldn't get digital. And there'd be stuff that you could only get digital that you couldn't get in stores. So you saw a couple of things, Patty, back to your point. I think the other thing that the Indies did, and listen, Image, you know, living proof, got Marvel and DC off their butts because Very the much. quality of the work from the Indies was stronger. It wasn't censored. There wasn't anybody in a suit saying, you can't do this, you can't do that. It was just, you know, wonderfully free. And you could see the freedom and the beauty of the artwork and you could see the, you could hear and read the freedom, you know, and the expression. Digitally, I mean, to me, the path right now is uh, the Webtoon style phone comics. If you haven't checked it out, I recommend check it out right now. Line Webtoons, Tapas, any of the Korean and Asian companies that do comic books custom for your phone. What's interesting about doing comics that way is I don't see, and again, this is training, it's just really how you, how you grew up. I didn't see the NBA as basketball games. I didn't see Michael Jordan as a basketball player. I saw Michael, he certainly was a wonderful basketball player. But, you know, he was a video game and he was a jersey and he was a home video and he was a pair of sneakers. And, you know, Spider-Man was always the same way to me. So when we create stories, it's panel by panel with a script. The digital version has to be different. You can't put all those typed words in a digital comic and expect anybody to keep scrolling. So a really well-made digital comic we'll have maybe 50% of the text of a really well-made comic book. And the digital comics read a panel at a time. And then when you go convert to a real comic book, you have the opportunity to bring in some beautiful artworks and two-page spreads and things that your phone just can't handle, you can handle in print. So there, there's a natural, unless you force them to be identical, they're naturally different products. And they should, they should one should really feed the other. Right. And if I'm wrong, then if that's not true, then I don't know what is true. And if someone has something that's true, that's better than that. You know, this is aid to artists, writers and artists and company. We're just made to survive. We'll do anything that's logical and reasonable. I think the Dio said something similar about how digital needs to be different, how they have to come up with a new way that isn't the standard comic. And they and they have not. Nobody's been successful in the American market with that yet? I think it's just greedy, Mike. Because if you look at the free digital readership across the board, free digital readership of comics, but comics has been healthy and growing. And, you know, until recently, the quality level was not as good as the print side. It's, it's getting better now. But I just think we were charging too much for comics. Look, your standard comic book now, $3.99 for 32 pages, that's insane. That's just a week ago too, but that's just a crazy price, you know. So we're sort of priced to sell to Patty and Mike. And then the heart the challenge is to look surprised where nobody else buys. So on the digital side, DC and Marvel just I don't know, but I really don't know the specific pricing. I haven't paid a lot of attention. But across the board, the pricing on comicsology is what, 10 times higher than it should be? And they have the low sales results to prove it. So I don't see comicsology as building anything. I think what comicsology does is they service a, a growing group of older consumers who are losing their local comic shops and don't have any other economical choice but to read online. But that's not a real business model. That's just squeezing a little bit extra water out of the sponge. Yeah. What do you think of DC's decision to basically prop up and create two new distributors to push out comics? So um, um, it was a handful of things that got me fired from Marvel the first time through. It was standing in front of the Marvel train buying Heroes World. And so I, I guess I should give a background because not everybody's 800 years old on the call. Yeah. Back when comic books were successful, there were nine aggressive competitive distributors, all of whom carried everybody's property. Yeah. So an aggressive distributor who might not be able to get the corner candy store could go down to the local gas station, put a spinner rack up in the local gas station. And they could do that because everything you need, Mr. Gas Station, is going to be on this rack and you buy it from me and it's one check and here's the first set of comic books for free. The minute Marvel bought Heroes World, and I, I'm, I'm more or less reading you a transcript of the meeting that got me fired, the minute Marvel bought Heroes World, now the gas station has to buy Marvel from 
this distributor and DC from that distributor and image from that distributor. And you can't see the finger I'm putting up now, but that's what the world said to us. And it was very clear that was going to happen. And we did it. And we helped ruin the industry. Uh, that was a querulous period, certainly. And I, because we're in South Florida, it was Capital City was uh, was our vendors down there. And again, great bunch of guys, great business. Wonderful too. company. Yeah. And, and it's and and that mentality spilled over into gaming as well. Games Workshop uh, tried to do the same model as well, and with the the same results. And I I always wondered about that too. It's like I just assumed there must be somebody in a room that that the math of this works for them, but I don't even think they get worked on, on, on that aspect. It's a long and sorted story. When I, when I get back to Diamond, so look, I mean, you know, part of it is Diamond is a frustrating company to deal with because their information systems are not up to par with the rest of the distribution world. And that's not an accident. I mean, let's be Theodore Roosevelt for a minute. Monopolies don't work in a capitalist system. So anytime there's a single anybody that dominates any industry, you have to get inefficient. That's what happens everywhere. So, I, you know, if you know the guys that dominate personally, they want to do the best they can do, but nothing drives you forward like competition. So I think, the, you, know, I, you know, I very seldom applaud DC, but in this particular case, the addition of more distributors ought to help the industry. Uh, Marvel's been very quiet during this time, which is shocking that the, the industry leader isn't leading and that DC is the one making very bold, bold moves to get books flowing again. I, I would imagine that if you were at Marvel, they would not be as quiet. Yeah, I think if I was at Marvel, I would have had a heart attack by now, so just as well. Um, I'm not going to carry out these first. So, so what's going on with you guys at AWA right now? Are you still putting out books digitally? Are you working on new stuff? Yeah, so we have a dream uh, set of investors and a dream board of directors. And, you know, sort of the name names, the first company in was Lightspeed Venture Partners, most famous for taking Snap public. So, that you know, they were digital all the way through. Uh, they tolerated, uh, you know, Bill and Axel's print first philosophy, but they we were gearing up for digital distribution a month after each book was issued. And we were also geared up to deliver books, not just on Comixology, but on Webtoons and Tapas format. And the other investors are uh, James and Liz Murdoch. Uh, they're the siblings who left the uh, Fox News empire and set their own funds. And they've been 100% supportive. So they're not the kind of people who uh, are timid when there's a crisis. Uh, you know, a, a good friend, uh, you know, a Marvel person always says that the Chinese symbol for crisis and opportunity are the same. And as a company, we really believe that, that this is a crisis and it's horrible. Uh, but there's an opportunity to move successfully in the business. So right now, everything that we're doing, we're releasing first digitally on Webtoons formats and on our website for free. And then ultimately, the books will all go to Comixology and to, and to comic shops in a format that's significantly different than the Webtoons format. Uh, we've kept all of our employees up and running. We've kept all of our creators busy. And we, we have enough money to go for a pretty long time. And then we have good backing should all that fail. It's just very hard to handicap right now. You, Mike, you know as well as I do, many stores hang on by a thread. You know, and as much as people complain about Diamond, every once in a while you stop and say, thank God Steve keeps on funding the industry, right? So, but, but then you really wonder that stores have been living, you know, sort of month to month, whether they'll be able to come back and how many will come back and how robust the business will be. So it's a little bit worrisome for, you know, you know, no, good I, people businesses for a long time. I think there was a death clock already, you know, on, on comic stores. I mean, you know, you, Rich and Leaning Cool loves to post every time a store goes out of business. And, you know, it's it's almost like watching CNN with their their COVID clock, where for the last couple of years, it's how many stores have gone out of business this month. And it's I think a lot of people have had a, the sky is falling you know, mentality. And yes, a lot of retailers are living hand to mouth, you know, they're living on a, a wing and a prayer. And I don't know that. I don't think 30% of them, if not more, I think 30% of them go away, you know, by the time this is all over, I don't know how they come back. I don't know with, with rents, with their distributor bills, 
with, you know, with everything. I mean, I don't know how they open their doors after this is over. Um, so it's not, you know, there's only so many sketches Jim Lee can, can auction off to, <laughs> yeah. to, uh, to front the, to front yeah. the industry. And it's, and it's, you know, hopefully Steve, hopefully diamond is understanding with some of these guys. And, but again, they're a business. They have to, they have to pay their bills and they have to pay DC and they have to pay Marvel. So it's, so, it's you know, know, Steve, you know, hats off to Steve, who was very encouraging to all of us, you know, and, and you know, especially explaining that his bank is behind him and, you know, willing to go. And that was all very encouraging and good. I mean, like I have two, you know, two minds about this. One is we have bigger problems than the life or death of the comic book industry. Sure. And, you know, there's, there's a major economic collapse out there. And part of the reason to keep going is. Keeping going is the opportunity for, you know, everybody to be successful in the long haul. And yet we have the luxury in comics that were pretty much all virtual anyway. But, Mike, I do have to say, you know, as we were starting AWA, we thought, okay, what are going to be the feeder systems for comics? There were really two. It wasn't just digital. It was also the shows. So, as you know, you know, AWA really was very committed last year and had been very committed this year to sampling out the shows. So, hopefully... The advent of, and as you know, as your business comes back online, hopefully comic conventions will be feeder system, and hopefully retailers getting to comic conventions will be a source of additional income. There's that part of it, but I also believe that the comic book voices, the creator voices are important. I think we've been restricted ourselves to men in tights, and now we have women in tights, but there's a lot of tights. You know, foot in the mouth. Do you really wonder if reading superheroes coming to save your sorry ass for 20 years, if that's really prepared you for, to face a crisis? So if you're sitting around waiting for a superhero to come and save you, you got to start reading different books. So I don't, I don't, I won't mourn, you know, the d- diminution of superhero stuff. I, I want to hear Mark Miller's voice. I want to hear Brian Bendis's voice. I want to hear Joe Straczynski's voice. I want to hear what creators have to say. And so does our board. So, you know, a lot of the reasons why I keep coming back and beating my head against this wall is there are important voices that need to be heard, and we have the opportunity to put them in front of a large audience. I think digital opens up that door, and the crisis gives us all collectively the opportunity to take stock and say, that old world ended, and now we have to find a new world, and digital and conventions, when conventions come back online, is going to be one of the keys. And off we go. We have to try that. You're, you've got a partner in Axel Alonso, mm-hmm. who, while he was Marvel's editor in chief for a number of years, really comes from a more experimental background with Vertigo. Yeah, and really knows how to work with creators to bring out their voices, and not in the suit and you know not in the the, the, the spandex and tights kind of variety. So mm-hmm. you you theoretically have somebody with you who knows how to pull that out of people. You know, it's not a theory. Axel has a knack for so much of editorial at Marvel. And I don't know what DC, how DC is going to come out of this, but historically DC, there's probably an acronym I can think of. I'll think of when I get off the call. They're in charge of saying no. So regardless of what you wanted to do, if it was good and smart and funny and interesting, Paul Levitt's answer was no. Right. And then that that carried over for year after year after year, whatever you wanted to do that was good or interesting or fun or lively. <sighs> Axel never had that attitude. Axel figures out what's missing in your story and helps you fill it in. But he does not censor people. And I think you know, that's one of the reasons why AWA has so many star creators working for us on, you know, on, on not extravagant budgets. We're not outpaying people. We're just giving them a better atmosphere and it's more fair and square deal. And, but a lot of what brings people in is the opportunity to work with Axel. I would concur. I think Axel's, I always pictured Axel as an old school style editor with 21st century sensibilities. He really well, had, in the, in the sense that, and I, I've been on panels before where a lot of artists, a lot of writers have lamented they really don't get edited anymore. It's just like, okay, go, go deliver the script next week. Don't you want to talk about it? No, I hired you. You can go. And everything I've heard about Axel is that he's really creator driven. He's really like, okay, let's talk about this to this too. And, and I can just tell by your inventory that you guys are putting out that is really strong 
definitive visions. It's not just okay, Mega Man, Ultraman, Super Duper Ultraman. It's 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 not a picture before. These are you have some very identifiable brands, and the minute you see them, they're oh, that looks different from this. That looks different from that, and this is what we need right now. Right. So it's Axel and it shows Trzinski and Garth. It's it's a good cadre of dedicated, serious people trying to do something important. I'm seeing tweets come and grow, or maybe I'm seeing things come and go across my screen. I'm happy to answer people's questions. I just don't know even how to find them. So do we have enough time for me to answer questions? I don't think we really have a lot. A couple people have. Some people have been throwing stuff up, some things like oh, that. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm just gonna pull it up. Comics started, you know, during the Great Depression, as a as a you know kind of an entertainment medium. Comics. We were talking earlier about how we have a lot of problems right now that you know complete economic collapse. I mean, this country is in a, you know, there are issues. But the last time we had a, a Great Depression, that's when comic books came out, and they were originally a very cheap disposable form of entertainment and that that they are not that as you were saying the, the cost of comics is comparatively you know 10 cents for a 50 some odd page comic you know in 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 1935 okay. you know even before superman and now okay. you're now you're talking about four to five hours for what's essentially 22 pages of story even so- though it's yeah, let, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. So first, your point is very well taken about comics during the Depression as a cheap form of entertainment. And, and I would say historically, pamphlets have, I mean, I hate when I hate that word pamphlets for comics, just like I hate the word floppies. But the word pamphlets, you know, pamphlets have always been important historically from, you know, from Comet Sense, Thomas Paine to the Little Red Book. You know, pamphlets circulate quickly, easy to read, really matter, really move the needle of public opinion. And I think that's one of the reasons why in the McCarthy years, the right wing clamped down so heavily on comic books was because they could be so influential and so powerful. So as to pricing, there's just this painful math of running a business that you need jerk to look at what your costs are and price at a multiple of your cost so that you can make money. And the problem with that is if you price too high, then your print volumes drop and your per unit costs go up. So if you're printing 50,000 comics, your running cost is 20 cents. And you don't have to charge $4. You can charge a dollar and you can still make a tremendous amount of money. The problem is if you're little and you don't have a lot of audience and you're not established yet, then your print costs look a lot, a lot more like a dollar or a dollar fifty a buck, and then just to cover your art and editorial and stay alive, you're charging a three ninety nine. So to be successful, it takes some guts. You have to be you know raise enough money or or risk enough money to print enough books to sell it cheaply enough to have a chance to start. And you can fall on your face doing that, or you can be crazy successful doing that. Marvel decided in nineteen in 2001 to be crazy successful with graphic novels. So when we hit the graphic novel market, our first print runs were 10,000. So we printed the books for a buck 50 and got them sold into retail, way deep discounts. So the books could still be $10 and have retailers still make a lot of money. So a lot of the problem with pricing now is as volumes get low, there's so much pressure to raise your price. And thankfully and unfortunately, there's still enough 40 to 62 year old men and women who will spend that money. But that's just missing the opportunity to bring new people in. And, and in the long haul, it's a fool's game. Sandy had a question and, and she wants to know what the modern equivalent of a comic is in today's depression. And she's saying it's Netflix and thinking on that, well, on Netflix, you're getting these daredevil, you know, Luke Cage shows that are, you know, eight, 10 hours of content mm-hmm. and you're paying what? $15 a month for Netflix and getting all these, all this content that you could watch for hours at a time. So it's kind of an all you can eat thing. And, and I think, you know, uh, on top of that, like Marvel Unlimited, where it's an all you can eat kind of buffet or, you know, Disney plus these kinds of things. So when you're, when you're trying to 
charge four dollars a book, it's kind of hard to to combat those other uh, platforms. Yeah, and I mean, Sandy, I think your point's well taken. I would pile on that Netflix, especially, but also Amazon, they've gotten very aggressive and innovative because they understand. You know, in the old days, three networks. So if you didn't do something that was going to appeal to a third of America, if you couldn't find the lowest common denominator, you weren't going to make money. Netflix just these wonderful niche documentaries and and very much creator-driven simple works. So not only are they price point lower, right, to what they're reaching a much wider audience with a much more diverse range of content. So, you know, my dream is, you know, you're watching Mark Miller, you know, one of Mark Miller's now six or seven series that's going to go up on Netflix. And then you can sort of point your phone at the screen and then scroll through his comic book that you get for free. So hopefully we'll figure out a way so that as you're watching a program on Netflix, that you can get a download of a comic book that expands the story on your phone or on your computer. So ideally we'll be able to work with the streaming companies to use comic artwork and comic talent as a feeder system for movies and TV shows. Well, you know, listen, that was the Marvel and DC model for years. In the past 10 years or so, that's fallen by the wayside. I mean, you know, back in the day, you know, when Axel and Joe and I and, and Tom Brevoort and company were clicking on all cylinders, we were able to do such a diverse range of high quality content that we really kind of showed the world how to tell stories about superheroes. I think that can happen again. It may not happen at Marvel DC as much as it happens at Netflix or Hulu or Amazon. One thing that um, I, I was really taken by when I was doing my remembrance of during your tenure, and since we're living in a, a querulous time now, uh, Marvel was under your stewardship during 9-11. And I always thought that uh, all the products you get that Marvel put out then was very, very tasteful, very, very soulful, and very reverential. At that time, we all know everybody was trying to put an American flag on the cover of whatever they were doing and and. Everybody, everybody was going going out of their way to to be a part of of sharing the experience and hey everybody we feel for you too but you, you the, the, what you guys were putting on outwise I thought was was very well done very well right. very very above the bar thank you for saying that and I appreciate it. I'm sure Joe Casada who led that charge would especially appreciate that I do have to say there was a point when. I felt that we were helping to beat the drums of a horribly immoral war. And one of the things that we tried to do was counterpoint wars, the answer. We did a really fun and wonderful book called, I think it was called 411, but it was just the idea, a little bit more information about the other side of a conflict. And, yeah. you know, sadly, it, sadly, the book didn't matter. I mean, I sadly, the war, the war just kept coming. And, and the results have been disastrous, you know, sort of up and down the Middle East and up and down the nation. So, I mean, I, you know, I do think, um, you know, few of us, um, a few of the employees lost people in the, in the bombing, well, in the crash. And, you know, I think that spurred us on to do that 411 book, you know, sort of a, a tribute to people who actually died there. Yeah. And I just wish that book had done better. I wish I had more time to, to focus on it. Yeah. And I know uh, uh, Straczynski's uh, issue of Iron Man. I again, they, him, yeah. Jim, him and John just knocked it out. And I know they both Spider Man, Patty. Spider Man, Spider Man, the black cover. Yeah, yeah, the black cover. Yeah, we interrupt this uh, interprogram for a special message. And I know they both said since then that they've never been able to look at it since then. So, and hopefully, we'll never need a, another <laughs> another issue like that again. I didn't save a lot. I saved that one. There's a shot of Doctor Doom in that book. If you're a comic book nerd, it's just a, it's a big seat. So they, they I have to say, Joe's first run on Spider-Man, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I have a horrible memory. I mean, I never had a good memory. It's not getting any better. Joe Straczynski's first run on Spider-Man, he had a scene where another Spider character was fighting a villain with Spider-Man. And Spider-Man was just like knocked down, about to get killed. And it, it was just wonderfully poetic. Um, and I'll, I'll butcher it, but this wonderfully poetic statement from Spider-Man was that I always wonder what it felt like to be a victim and have Spider-Man come and save you. And now I know it feels pretty good. And nasty old guy that I actually had a tear from reading that. So, you know, I called Joe immediately. I said, Joe, 
somebody finally got me. And, and, and it was it was Trzinski on that one issue. It was beautiful. So you're working with Joe on uh, what, the resistance? So Joe has four series going with us right now. Uh, a couple creator-owned that haven't been announced yet, but, uh, a, but a couple in the Resistance universe. So who are some of the guys you're working with right now and, and their books? Oh, don't put me on the spot. I, 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 I'm very, you know, if you haven't noticed, I'm very dyslexic. So when I get off the call, I remember all the things I should have said. So I, if I had my piece of paper in front of me, I'd have everybody. But well, you got then, uh, Peter Milligan on American Ronin, which okay. I'm very interested in because I'm a Peter Milligan fan. You got uh, oh, old he's teamed up with ACO, and the artwork yes. is killer. I, I, you know, we've had some preview pages out in Upshot now. Yeah. Just killer artwork. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I think ETER just came out. Right. Uh, Peter's written some of that. And then a good friend from um, uh, Double Take Days, Jeff McComsey, wrote an issue of that. Ben Percy did a wonderful job. Uh, ben and Axel recreating the world of zombies. Just a lot of really good talent. Rob Williams has the, our next book to be released is by Rob Williams, Old Haunts. Just, you know, it's a, a nice, solid set of talent who were just dying to work with Axel in an atmosphere where they could do one or two books that they own and one or two books that we own. So everybody gets their own books and we help sell them to Hollywood. And then they, they do some books that we own and they get some stock in the company. I'm interested in Bad Mother. That looks like it'll be fun. From day one. And uh, Kristen Fouts is writing it and, and Dio's drawing it and it's beautiful, just beautiful. So somebody wants to know, do you ever work with uh, Stan Lee on anything? No, just a, a, you know, just a funny conversation with him. He was busting my chops, partially because Stan came out with, this is, this is like 2000-ish. Stan came out with Stanley Media, which was do, a dot-comic first company. So as we're doing Ultimate Spider-Man, we changed him from being a newspaper reporter to a webmaster. And Stan called and said, why don't you just make him a dentist? It's just the funniest line. But you know, what Stan would do is you, you could call Stan with a creative problem and he would give you a really innovative solution. So now I never had the opportunity. So when I got to Marvel, he had his own company and he was still cordial and helpful and would give us a pep talk, but I never had the opportunity to work on a book with him. The, the, the timing never worked out. What's the what's the what's the ultimate uh, ambition for for all this? Where would uh, where would you like to see this cresting at? Uh, so I the way AWA is set up. So AWA is set up. So think of us again. You know, there's that saying: when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So I see AWA as the league office, so as the NBA league office, and then have a lot of imprints like Upshot that are the teams. So we bring in as many creators like that. I mean, there's not a lot of axles in the world, but we bring in people who want to lead their imprints and we fund them and we say, don't worry about the back end. Whatever it takes to market, we'll do. We saw that with Upshot. We pulled out every stop you could possibly pull out, right? So that's what I would love to see is a platform where really good, innovative, creative voices get funded and security to do what they do best in teams with an editor to help them through and then we promote the heck out of the books digitally, get a couple of million readers for every single book, and then have that feed a successful comic book business. That's the dream. And if all that happens, then movies and TV shows have to happen. And you see all that stuff in back of Mike. That's what I really do well. I'll fill up shelves with that stuff that's in back of Mike. What's been a memory that uh, resonates with you with uh, meeting a fan? Oh, well, let me tell you my best and worst memory of comic book conventions. Mike was nice enough to fly me first class to one of his conventions and set me up to do two, you know, talks. Sure. And the, fir and, and the first talk, I got in front of this big group of people. And Mike, I don't know if you remember, I completely froze. I could not say a word. And I said to everybody, listen, I'm just too nervous to talk right now. I'm going to sit here at the edge of the stage and you can ask me questions and I'll try to answer. But for the first time in my life, I'm too nervous to talk. I don't know what happened to me. That was horrible. But then, Mike, you asked me, there was, I think Jim Shooter was supposed to do something with a moderator and the moderator didn't show. And I got to share a stage with Jim Shooter for an hour. And he was the most entertaining, funny, you know, glib, ax to grind joke to tell. It was absolute blast. It was an absolute blast. 
And there was a certain point when, you know, it, I just added up, he had started Valiant Comics and Defiant Comics. I'm like, Kid Jim, you are valiant and defiant. It was just, that that was my best <laughs> memory of a comic book convention. And the other times it was mostly uh with you know Joe Casada and the guys at the Chicago shows at Morton Steakhouse, you know, getting a little drunk at night, saying, gee, what if there what if the American government really did have a super soldier serum in World War II? Would they have given it to Steve Rogers or would they have given it to a bunch of black guys to see what would happen? And then what would happen if one of the black guys really was a hero? Would they have touted him as the person who saved the war or they would have found a Pat Boone to stand in his place? So we would just come up with these ideas. So a really fun book called The Truth, which was Black Captain America. So stuff like that would come out of the conventions. And that was really the only place it could happen because that was the only place we could be in person face to face with a little alcohol and a little time to just let our hair down and think of things that we would do if, if if management would let us, and they would look at me and say, well, you're management. Are you going to let us? Okay. Let's go. <laughs> You've had a really remarkable run, uh, Bill, and you are continuing this run too in this new enterprise. And uh, again, again, it, you, you said yourself that you are in this world, but you're sort of an outsider. And to use uh, uh, an aphorism for, or an analogy from the geek world, you are a Mr. Spock to all these Captain Kirks that you've assembled and you, <laughs> but you have, but you have, but you, it's, it's this attachment that makes, gives you this clarity and gives you this success. You're able to look at the numbers. You're able to do this. And this facilitates this fountain of creativity that, that you did at your time at Marvel and what you're doing right now. So I just say, keep up the good work because it, it really is something like miraculous you're building on. And I'm so excited to see what comes out of this. Thank you. And I'll say fascinating, Patty. Okay. <laughs> All right. oh, this is my basketball figure. So one of my figures doesn't work because that's my little basketball injury. So we're going to wrap this up. We're almost at an hour. So I want to thank you, Bill, for joining us. You're welcome. It was uh, a pleasure. Tell everyone to go to, to AWA studios uh, website. To see what you guys got going on, it's awastudios.net. Is the and you can read all of our first issues for free in a webcomic format that's significantly different than our print format. And then next week, we have Jim Starlin on on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And then the following Tuesday, speaking of Jim Shooter, we have Jim Shooter, who's one of my favorite people to talk to. Oh, but I'll be typing questions. Yeah, okay. Please do. I think, you know, Jim, I think has a... You know, he's one of those guys that was very, you know, like you, very opinionated, got a lot of heat and did a lot of great things, took a lot of risks and, and tried to get, you know, the, the, the trains to run on time, you know, did a lot in this business, but sometimes gets beat up for having been the boss. You know, people don't always love the boss because the boss has to be <laughs> uh, The so. boss or people don't like it when the doctor gives them the bad news, uh, but offers the cure but it's going to take a while. It's not what you want to hear. Thank you, everybody who's watching, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to GalaxyCon Talks Comics. We hope you'll join us again next time, and don't forget to follow us online at galaxycontalkscomics.com. <laughs>